A reading from Psalm 139. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search up my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you already know our hearts. You know where each of us has been every moment of our lives. You know our fears, you know our hopes, you know our desires. You know us tonight, and we long to know you. Would you make that possible through your word and by your spirit? And we'll thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. We have been spending these summer months considering, studying God's character, his attributes. Who is God like? What is he like? And we've been doing that through the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms are poems or songs. And so right away, you know, they're, they're probably the most intimate form of expression. One person has said about poetry that as we read poetry, it reads us, right? It reveals things to us about our hearts and our lives. And this is, in short, this is to say that we are known. Now, the Psalms are wonderful for this, these poems, because the knowing is at a depth we can find nowhere else because there are two things happening. In one hand, through this inspired poem by God, as the psalmist brings his heart before God, he's bringing our heart and fears and cares. My guess is as you heard that psalm read, there was one part of it that resonated with you. Yet at the same time, 
God is speaking to us through the psalm, all through this same poem. Psalm 139 is all about being known. Knowing is mentioned five times at least. The God who knows, the knowing God, the one that looks into the depths of our soul. John Calvin famously observed that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together. You know, unless uh, you know, if you only know yourself, you'll never know how glorious and majestic God is. But if you only know God and don't know yourself, you won't see your need of him. And in this psalm, it's clear that David, the author, knows God in both senses. And so as we look at it together, I think there's two things that stand out. Knowing God leads to knowing our security and our value. Our security and our value. So let's look at those two things together. First, our security. Well, as Mike uh, mentioned earlier, you know, again, we have more tragedies to pray about and to grieve over. Um, in some ways, it's the first half of the summer has been a summer of lament in 2016. And now we add the coup in Turkey and the massacre in Nice. I was watching a journalist interviewing the mayor of Nice, and his questions really revolved around the same thing, security. He said, was there enough security? Why wasn't there more security? Did you request more security? The answer was seen in if we had more security. And that's true, in part. Because even all the security of men, and not to undermine that at all, it's important, it's biblical, it's what God calls us to do. But who can offer 24-7 security? I was thinking back, it was about six years ago, this time of year in August, when in Chile, the San Jose mine collapsed on 33 miners. And they were trapped for 69 days. Can you imagine that? 69 days in this dark mine. And if you read some of the stories, many of them credited their rescue as a, a small M miracle from God. But many of them spoke about God, and they actually referred to him as the 34th miner. The one that was present when his fa the family members couldn't be. The one that was there in that dark, forlorn place with them, which could have easily been a grave. And this is the hallmark of the God of the Bible. Who truly, he truly goes where no man has gone before. Okay, He's the one that's able to go places that you and I cannot get to. I mean, one day someone you love or you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Who's going to walk with you through that? I think I mentioned years ago, I had a stunning in my memory of this, where when I was up in Boston, um, a fellow a PCA minister's son, who was at Boston University, was doing a prank with some of his friends, climbed up a high tower and fell to his death. We were all shocked and devastated. And this minister came up, and he, he led uh, this service. And he said, as much as I would want to be in that valley with my son, I can't go there. I cannot be in that place. But God walked him through the valley. God is in the mine. He's in the valley. And this is the hallmark of the God of the Bible. 
In 1 Kings chapter 20, the king of Syria is going to battle Israel, and he thinks he can beat them if he can battle them in the valley or the plain because he says the gods of Israel live in the hills. They stay in the hills. So if we can just fight them in the plain, we'll win. But the problem was God was everywhere. He was in the valley. He was in the hills. And God defeated him basically over a theological problem, right? What he didn't understand. In Genesis 16, we read of an Egyptian servant named Hagar. She is mistreated by Abraham's wife, Sarai. And so she flees into the desert wilderness, resigning herself to die with her baby. And God finds her there, the angel of the Lord. And after she meets him, she says this, You are a God's seeing. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. That's what she said. And this is what the psalmist is commuting to us the presence of God and our security. He does it through a pair of opposites. First, he talks about God being present in heaven and Sheol. Sheol is a poetic Hebrew expression for the grave or the place of death. And then he says, you are also where the wings of the morning are. That's the furthest east where the sun rises. And then he says also the uttermost parts of the sea. That would be the Mediterranean Sea in the furthest west. So what he's saying is whether it's all the way far north, as high as heaven, or the depths of the sea, or the east and the west, and everything in between, you dwell. Wherever I could go and wherever I would be, you are there. Now, that knowledge of God is there can either suffocate you or comfort you. If you think he's your enemy and you're running from him, you'll, it suffocates you. But if you know him, it's the greatest comfort for your security. Now, the technical expression for this is the omnipresence of God. And when David says, you search me, that's the omniscience of God. But let us not be satisfied with the factual reality. Because for the psalmist and for David, it is a personal reality. It's the knowing that God is there personally in his heart. And David knew this. David wrote songs while he was running for his life. He wrote songs when he was in a cave. He wrote songs when he was captured by the enemy. These were the experiences of his life, the personal experience of his life. He knew God personally in that way. Do you? Is the presence of God more than factual for you? Is there this idea of God with us, Emmanuel? When our kids were younger, we would read the book to them, Runaway Bunny. Anybody remember that book, Runaway Bunny? A few of you? You ought to get it and buy it. It's a great book. And as the story goes, a little bunny... Uh, says to his mother, I'm going to run away. And the mother says, well, if you run away, I'll run after you. He says, well, if you run after me, I'll become a fish in a stream. And she says, if you become a fish in a stream, I'll become a fisherman. He says, well, if you become a fisherman, I'll become a rock on a high mountain. And she says, if you become a rock on a high mountain, I'll become a mountain climber. And so it goes. He says, well, I'll become a flower hidden in the garden. She said, well, I'll become a gardener and find you. He said, I'll, find, I'll become a bird and I'll fly away. She said, I'll become a tree and you'll land in me. He said, I'll become a sailboat and go far away. I'll become the wind and blow you back to me. 
And then he says, well, I'll become a little boy and run into a house. And she said, then I'll become the mother and be there. And at the end, the little bunny says, oh, shucks, I might as well stay. (laughs) What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful picture of the God of the Bible, right? I mean, he is the fisherman that catches us and pulls us from the bottom of the sea. He is the presence on the high mountain, whether it's Sinai or Zion. This is our God. He is the gardener that finds us in the garden, takes this weed that's dying, makes it into a beautiful flower. He, he joins us and grafts us with the vine, Jesus Christ, that we might bear much fruit. This is the God of the Bible. He is the tree. He is the one that is laid out on the cross and suffers for our sins and atones so that we might have a place to land. He is the wind. He is the Holy Spirit that breathes life into us and guides us through our life. He is the one that makes us sons and daughters whereby we go into the house and we find a father. This is God. This is the God of the Scriptures. And that means, my dear friends, that you can stop running. You really can stop running. You can stop hiding. Because he's going to find you. He's determined to find you wherever you are. So I'd ask you, where are you now? I know you're here, but where are you really? Where's your mind right now? Are you in a place of aloneness? I just moved to this city. I'm cut off from all my dear friendships. I'm in a place of transition. Or I've been in this city a long time and my friends have moved away. He would say to you, he will hem you in behind and before, lay his hand upon you. Or maybe you're in a place of confusion. You got a major decision before you. It's a job decision. It's a relationship decision. It's something about your health that you don't understand. You're confused. I don't know who I am, where I am. He would say to you, his hand shall lead you and his right hand shall hold you. Or maybe you're in a place of darkness, a place of grief, grieving about the world, grieving about someone you've lost in your life, grieving over the place that you struggle. And he would say to you, the night is like light and day to me. This is the God that we know. This is the God that knows us in the Scripture. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life. Do you hear that? If you want to be known by God, you can by knowing Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, But if you consider yourself a believer, do you believe these words that Jesus just said? Do you believe he says, I know you, I know my own? How could he not, right? This is our security. It's surprising, isn't it? I think we think our security is actually, if my life circumstances, if I could just have God doing 24-7 and nothing bad could ever happen to me. You're not secure in the circumstances of your life. You're secure in the knowledge that God knows you. He knows his own. And he hijacks evil that he might bring you to a place. But it's not just our security, it's our value. David moves 
in this poetic reflection to the time when he was unborn in the womb, uh, a time even before his mother knew she was pregnant and the Lord said, I care, I know you. His act of unformed substance, we would call his embryo, grew and developed. He was knit together. Here's a metaphor like a weaver knitting together a complex pattern together. Now, thankfully, with the benefit of uh, modern science and medicine, we, we can actually see a picture of that, can't we? You look at the first trimester. You see the brain is developing and the, the arm buds, and then you see the eyes, and it's just a glorious thing. It's almost like the child is being knit together in the mother's womb. In fact, the moment that the egg dissolves into the sperm, new life has been created, right? There were two d d uh, DNA. There are now three DNA, a new blueprint for a human being. It's amazing. It's glorious. And this is why, and this text has always been a foundational reason that Christians defend and protect the unborn, why they believe the unborn are, as David will say, a wonderful thing. That's one of the reasons from the beginning we've uh, partnered with Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center to be about that work of defending and protecting. I know many of you have been involved. But the thing I love about that organization is it just doesn't look for the birth of the baby, the protection. It looks beyond that because, right, it's, you can't just care about a glorious human being as they develop in a womb. You got to care for them after they develop outside of the womb, right? Are they getting the health care they need? Are they living in grinding poverty where they don't have the resources they have? Do they live in a neighborhood where it's a good chance they're going to end up in jail because there's not many other options? To be someone that really cares about life is to care about the life that develops outside of the womb, but even beyond that, to care about the one that bears the child, to care about the mother, value of the life of the child, value of the mother. Frederica Matthews Green, some of you may know of her, uh, in her earlier years, she was a devoted um, advocate of abortion and uh, worked hard that it would be legalized. Uh, she was an advocate in many ways, um, but she had a change in her life. Uh, there's an article you could read uh, uh, recently called When Abortion Stopped Making Sense to Her, if you're interested, but in that she gives an analogy of animals and she says, this analogy for animals shows the concern, her concern for mothers in the circumstances they face. Listen to this. If you were in charge of a nature preserve and you noticed that pregnant female mammals were trying to miscarry their pregnancies, eating poisonous plants or injuring themselves, what would you do? Would you think of it as a battle between the pregnant female and her unborn and find ways to help those pregnant animals miscarry? No, of course not you would immediately think something must be really wrong in this environment. Something has created intolerable stress, so much so that animals would rather destroy their own offspring than bring them into the world. And she goes on to say, a woman had, who had an abortion told me everyone around me was saying that they would be there for me if I had the abortion, but no one said they'd be there for me if I had the baby. One of our own members, who found herself uh, as a single mom. Uh, she's no longer uh, in our church, but still very much part of our community. 
Uh, she's written about this eloquently, and she said, you know, the moment I decided and said, I'm going to keep the baby, that's when things got worse. That's when things got more difficult, even within the Christian community in her life. But valuing the child, right, valuing this idea that, that God values the person means valuing everybody we've mentioned, the mother, the child, the community. But it also means valuing yourself, valuing yourself. In verse 14, David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, I have to confess, uh, that gets harder and harder to say the older you get. You know, you're sort of like, uh, instead of fearfully and wonderfully made, you're like, <gasps> you know, good night. My knees, my legs, right? It just happens that way. But what a thing God has made. You know, whether you're 20 or whether you're 80 here today. I mean, you know, you know some of these things, but they're so fun to hear. 60,000 miles of blood vessels in you. A response in our nerve impulses that's faster than a Formula One car. A brain that can perceive a thousand words per minute. An eye that can d d discern a million colors. A million colors. I mean, it's an amazing thing, and it's not just the inward parts, right? It's the outward parts. It's what we see. Maybe it's the ability or the appearance, the skin color. One translation says, for all these mysteries, I thank you for the wonder of myself, for the wonder of your works. Another says, I praise thee, for I am awesomely wonderful. I think I'm going to start saying that. But, no, but notice, he doesn't say, I praise me, because that's where our culture is. I praise me because I'm awesomely wonderful. And you know what that does? It makes a very narrow definition of what's beautiful and wonderful and good. It's a certain dress size. It's a waist side. It's a certain ethnicity or race. That's when people say, praise me, for I'm wonderfully made. But we're saying, praise thee. And when we say, praise thee, we lift up our eyes and we realize the image of God is only seen in the corporate image of humanity. Right? All body type sizes, all races, all ethnicities. This is the fearfully and wonderfully made person that God has made. You know, in our church, we have a CQ ministry, cultural intelligence and we're devoted to trying to learn and grow to see that sort of beauty. But the mark of it isn't just sort of like sitting back in our intellectualism and going, yes, these things are true. It's to be able to celebrate. It's the moment that you and I look across someone who's different than us, and we see beauty that we didn't see before. That's a sign that God is at work. We look at them and say, I never perceived beauty, whether it's their height, their nose, their skin, whatever it be, I never saw the beauty. I now see you as an image of God. And when you begin to do that, you might get, at times, as angry as David. Some of you were maybe shocked by David going, expressing holy hatred. There's a lot of unrighteous hatred, and there's a lot of unrighteous hatred that calls itself holy hatred. But there is a thing as righteous hatred, and when you begin to value people like David does, you begin to get angry when those people are destroyed. You get angry when a truck runs through them and kills them. You get angry when their lives are dismissed because, you know, they have Down syndrome or they're too old to be in the health system. 
It's that place that the people of God say, no, I still see beauty. I still see value there. Yet we have humility. David says, as he expresses that, you know, justice and anger, he says, but search me too. Search me if I have any bad way in me, any unrighteous way in me that I might know it. But it's not only being physically set apart. There's a hint in here also of the idea that, God, you spiritually set me apart. And for David, it was the time when he was the youngest. What love of God. Some of you were privileged enough to be born into homes where you heard the beautiful name of God and the gospel before you could talk. And a lot of times, Christians dismiss that. I hear them say, I don't have much of a testimony of God. Don't ever say that. The God of the universe set you apart even before you knew him. That's how much he wanted you. That's how much he came near to you. And so to all these things, the mark is this. You know, the psalmist said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You will know when you are known and you know him when you clap your hands, when you praise him, when you're filled with joy and wonder. That is the sign that you've known the one that knows you. Let's pray. God, our hearts are celebrating. You are our maker. We're not our maker. We thank you that you have redeemed us and loved us. We thank you that you have found us in the water and on the mountain and as we are flying away from you. Thank you for your presence with us now. In Christ's name. Amen.